0: Animals in the city, monkeys in the mirror, innovation, pluckiness, human-animal coexistence. This is 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. Animals have become far more often observed by humans over the years, We see them in our daily lives, expected, but mostly unheeded. But some of us pay more attention than others. Brandon Keim, a journalist who has published articles in The Atlantic, Wired, The Guardian, and many more, is one of those people who just pays more attention to the natural world around us. In this episode, Brandon joins us to chat about the human animal relationship, his book, The Eye of the Sandpiper, Stories from the Living World, and other bits and pieces. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks for joining us today. Oh,
1: thanks for inviting me, Martin.
0: So, uh, I'm really intrigued by this uh, sort of idea. You know, you're a writer for Wired magazine. Um, writing about animals doesn't necessarily seem the most obvious thing, so how did this happen and why? Mm. Well,
1: um, so I was a writer for Wired, and it was for the online section, not for the magazine, uh, for about seven years. And... You know, especially when I came on, they had always had a reputation of being a, a tech publication and you know, of course that's what made Wired famous and it's right there in the main. Um, you know, but, but the way that that message was articulated um, internally is that Wired wasn't just about tech per se. It was about um, being cutting edge and new important knowledge. You know, it was really sexy, you know, whether it's about technology or whether it's about, you know, monkeys recognizing themselves in the mirrors or honeybees having emotions or what have you. Um, and, and actually, I should also um, spare a word here for some of the people uh, who were around me at the time, especially my editor, uh, Betsy Mason and David uh, Hansen, who is the editor-in-chief on the online side of that. You know, they were very much in keeping with this vision, and, and I'm really thankful to them for... You know, being as excited about you know the, the ecological effects of gobies in a jellyfish blighted section of the Benguela Sea, uh, as as we were
0: about uh, nominally tech subjects. All right. Well, that that makes some sense. I'm glad that we you know kind of get the uh, the history of it there. So you know, this idea of cutting edge is really interesting as well. So. This is not necessarily a new phenomenon. You know, we've been reading about it for a long time—not a long time, some time now—of of, of um, what we would consider, you know, wild animals cre- making their way into the new habitat of a city. Um, but in a way that almost sort of seems like cutting edge, at least for the animals. So, what—and you write about this in the book as well. But what makes that so intriguing to you? Well, For me, at first, you know, it
1: was—it was just a surprise um you know especially uh many of the articles i wrote here i, I wrote when i uh, was living in new york city and you know just the just the unexpectedness of, of finding animals in in a very urban area um you know, it was, it was such a surprise and then and then you know their pluckiness was very inspiring in a way um and and then after that you know the the sorts of adaptations that make this possible, whether whether it's behavioral adaptation, it's genetic, um, you know, that's all of that is really what caught my attention at first. But what it really does now is is this appreciation that you know the animals in the city, uh, they're our neighbors, they're members of communities, uh, much much like we are, and. You know, the, the sparrows nesting in the eaves of the house are, are just as much a part of the neighborhood as the people inside it. and And that's what really
0: captures me now. So do do you think that as humans we're adapting to this idea of, of um, wildlife in the city, or is it maybe a readaption, because that used to be the case before cities were quite so uh, complete or built up? I mean, how, what's the human element of this?
1: I think in, in fit that starts and somewhat unevenly, we are coming to really coexist with, with the animals around us. And, and sometimes that can take the form of adaptation. I think that's, that's a really specific word. So if we're talking about adapting to that, it could be, you know, changing our habits or. Um, we're doing things in different ways than, than we would if they weren't around like how we put out garbage or, or things like that um, but just yeah getting to getting to know and getting to appreciate the animals around us is something we're definitely doing now and and I think this happens in a few different ways we can relate to the animals around us let's say just just in terms of biodiversity or having uh, uncommon species in urban areas. Um, and, you know, like, so in, in New York City, for instance, uh, there's just these wonderful natural areas in Jamaica Bay and um, way up in the Bronx, in Pelham Bay, and, and some other spots. You know, and, and there's species that live there and pass through there that are just really unusual and spectacular, and you wouldn't expect to, you know, see uh, glossy ibises or what have you uh, in New York City. So that's, that's sort of one way of, thinking about nature in the city. Um, and then another way, uh, getting back to that health barrel example, is also the common animals, you know, the ones the ones who are all around us that we don't necessarily uh, celebrate because they're rare or, you know, because of the biodiversity they add, but just because animals are neat, <laughs> surrounded and we're surrounded by them, even, you know, even in incredibly uh, urban places, and, and also in suburban places. Uh, I want to give a shout out um, to the suburbs as well. I think that's something that uh, we kind of, when we talk about nature in cities, there's often a mental image we have of a place like New York City or Chicago or somewhere that's just, you know, really tremendously dense. But I think the suburbs, the, uh, you know, lower density uh, human development is such a Fascinating habitat now, um, and and you see suburbs that support you know huge numbers of species, and you know they're really living side by side with humans, and that's that's such a neat origin.
0: Hmm. I, I want to linger on this idea of maybe ab- adaptation and coexistence. Um, it strikes me, and m- maybe I'm wildly off here, but I'd love your take on it. So, you know, historically as uh, you know white um Europeans and then Americans moved westward um sort of the the natural course of action almost seemed to be extermination rather than coexistence. Do you think city dwellers do it better? I mean is there something more inherently uh adaptable and coexisting in nature from a human city dweller with with a with a an animal city, city dweller than there was in the in the kind of wilds and open land I think. You know that's that's a very good question, and um, sort, of the sort of question
1: we could uh, we could talk about for for hours. So I think part of the difference between uh, the way that animals were just exterminated from the landscapes during the course of colonization, um, you know, part of the difference between then and now is is a matter of culture and historical progression, and just the fact that we as a uh, as a culture are not so thoughtless and rapacious uh, in many ways as, as we were 200 to 300 years ago, or, or for that matter, even a century ago. Um, <clears throat> but then also in, in the present time, the the difference between the coexistence in cities and coexistence in more rural areas. Yeah, I think that's that's a a rich subject and one that I wouldn't want to make any grand pronouncements defining that people live in cities and people live in in rural areas but speaking from my own experience um, you know I I grew up in Bangor, Maine which is a a small city that you know a lot of people would think of as being rural and I think in in a place that is tremendously nature rich in some ways I almost didn't notice animals and natural communities as individuals. Not that I was blind to them, you know, I've I've always loved the outdoors, loved being outside and,
0: you know, enjoyed
1: seeing wildlife and what have you, but I didn't really relate to them as closely as I did when um, I later moved to New York and then spent the last couple of years in Bethesda, Maryland, where there was just something about, you know, sharing a much more human-dominated environment with so many wild animals—that just sort of made made me appreciate them a little bit more, and maybe stop and think about them. Um, and, and I also think that uh, there is there is something to be said about the attitudes of of inclusiveness and liberalism that tend to prevail in cities more more than in uh, more rural areas, and and I think that leads over to how we to how we coexist with animals too. since everybody everybody is welcome, of all shapes and sizes, and, and yeah, that that
0: extends to uh, feathers and fur and what have you as well. So we've been kind of chatting a little bit, almost about the human side of things more than the the animal side of things in some ways. But and so you talk about a new anthropomorphism. Tell us about that.
1: So, I think most people, uh, certainly myself, the the first time we hear the word anthropomorphism or anthropomorphic, uh, it's in a negative way, right? Mm. It's being used to criticize someone who's uh, assigning human characteristics to animals who couldn't possibly possess them, or or maybe it's possible, but there's no way we can know, so we shouldn't even uh, go there. And that's really where science was stuck for most of the 20th century, and, and you still see that today. Uh, but you know, in our in our day to day lives, outside the lab, um, certainly we've had no you know anybody who knows a dog well or knows a cat well is perfectly comfortable assigning um, uh, maybe not maybe not strictly human uh, mental characteristics to them, but you know we're we're not so far away from them. They're not so far away from us in a lot of ways, and you know, and we're we're seeing now, you know, a, a real sea change in culture, both popular culture and scientifically, where people are saying actually, you know, it's it's not just cats and dogs and animals we know best, but you know, human and animal minds have a great deal in common, and they're built common networks and molecules and. By similar evolutionary pressures. Uh, and maybe we shouldn't think of anthropomorphism as being a, a bad thing. It's just a way of trying to understand other animals. And you know, that doesn't mean that you know, we should be careless about it. It's, it's still important to be rigorous. Um, and you know, if, if we're talking about this in a scientific context, to try to come up with experiments and ways and methods of observation that, you know, can really lend themselves to confirming or not confirming um, those sorts of hypotheses they make about animal science. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, with all that being said, uh, anthropomorphism isn't something to be frightened about. And, uh, you know, to reject that is to risk being anthropocentric, right? You know, See humans, as the evolutionary center of everything, which is... Not unlike, in some ways, thinking the the universe revolves around the sun. You know, mm-hmm. it's we're, we're not that singular. But that said, I don't want to I don't want to give people the impression that every other animal out there is, is just a bird or feathered or you know, little version of us. I mean, there could be ways of experiencing the world that are unique to other animals, but we don't. Present. Um, and and I think it's really fun. Try to imagine, you know, how the world appears to uh, a swallow. Let's say a chimney swift, or, um, and you know, that you know the experience of swallow flying overhead and going between North America and South America with their friends and family twice a year, and you know, insects out of the air, you know, half a mile up. I mean, those, you know, that. The inner life of the swallow could be like our own in so many ways and then different in so many ways too and and I think it's uh, it's a great challenge to try to understand that.
0: I think that, that idea of um, trying to imagine uh, the world from an animal's perspective is, is, a, is a beautiful one and um, I'm not sure if you saw it or how many of those listening did but there was a, a video doing the rounds uh, earlier this week maybe. Um, taken uh, by a camera placed on the back of, a, of an eagle. And uh, it gave you a wonderful view of at least what it looks like for an eagle uh, to see our, the world. Uh, maybe not to know what they think, but close enough to see it at least. Um, Brandon, thank you very much for joining us. This, was big, this is really interesting. Hopefully it uh, uh, gives us uh, all something to consider and think about as we view the, uh, the animal world from our own.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much, Brandon. i
0: really enjoyed it. That was Brandon Keim, author of The Eye of the Sandpiper, Stories from the Living World. You can find Brandon's book and all the others published by Cornell University Press at cornellpress.cornell.edu or your preferred bookseller. To save 30% on Brandon's book, visit cornellpress.cornell.edu and enter 09POD when you check out. You've been listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.